ladies and gentlemen, this is the Unnarrative Podcast, hosted by AJ Channel, produced by my man Johnny Jahani. Today, my guest is none other than Doc Motherfucking Shreds a Lot Coil from uh, Bad Wolves and formerly of God Forbid. Doc was popping, my friend. Oh, you know, it's just a, another sunny day in uh, Southern California. I mean, luckily, the, uh, the orange haze of smoke and fire has dissipated and kind of starting to look like uh, L.A. again, even though we're, we're in kind of the midst of another, of another heat wave. But, you know, we're kind of, you know, I got up to post-presidential debate kind of, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, hate, you know, uh, you know, like a boxer, you know, kind of got his bell rung a, a little bit. But I'm actually taking it all in stride. and, and um, a stressful time, you know, for not only the country, but I, I think the West, kind of the, the and, yeah. and the world, this whole, this whole thing. But, uh, you know, obviously we're in unprecedented area of history in terms of the pandemic and not being through that and dealing with all the uh, destruction that is done in terms of lives, but also to the economy and our, the work that we do and just allowing guys like you and myself from doing the job that we love every day but uh but overall i'm actually in pretty good state of mind word 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 uh last night the debate bro that felt more like a um i felt like i was watching a press conference for a ufc fight or not even a ufc <laughs> fight like the wwe but we'll, we'll talk about yeah. that because i think that i think that is a full culminate culmination of what we both read and got probably got from that op-ed piece that we wrote. So uh, last week you posted an op-ed piece by Nicholas Kristoff, Christ- um, who is an opinion writer for the New York Times. This isn't the first time that I've read something by him, but I saw that you posted it and I saw it and as well. And I was like, oh, I read that. And I figured we'd have maybe some overlapping ideas about it or contrasting ideas, but I, th- I thought it'd be a really good topic to talk about especially since um, this is not something I'd never heard of the social progress index before, but I always equated, you know, social progress and, and the overall state of well-being. I always equated that into the conversation when talking about uh, how well a country's doing or how well a society's doing as opposed, you know, in conjunction with GDP and other economic indicators and all that other shit. But um, I thought this was really good, this one, especially at this particular time in history, like you've already uh, outlined. And the premise and ethos of the Unnarrative podcast is to have these sort of conversations, to talk about the things that unite us, to talk about the things that we might not agree upon, to have conversation that uplifts, to have converse- conversation that unites, and to talk about issues that we face on a social level. And I thought this was a really good um, op-ed piece and so for those that are unfamiliar it was titled we're we're number 28 and dropping an opinion piece by nicholas Kristoff. so for those of brittle spirit that don't want to hear something that you might find to be un-american or that's unpatriotic and that just hurts my little red white and blue heart uh i would stop listening but for those that are interested in talking and really interested in hearing, uh, you know, not necessarily the facts of things, but just hearing the way people and he- talk and human stories that can add to, you know, ultimately getting back to a place where we can start communicating and stop this us versus them bullshit. So what I'm going to do um, for those listening and Johnny, my producer, say what's up, Johnny. You haven't said it. hi today, by the way, anyway. So hi, I'm Johnny Jahani. It's really nice to meet you, Doc. How are you today? Nice. I'm doing all right. Thank you for having me. Of course. It's good to have you on. All right. So I'm just going to read excerpts from this this op-ed piece that I thought were quite poignant. We'll talk about it, bullshit about it, and then we'll get on with our day. So my friends, without further ado, here is uh, We're Number 28 and Dropping by Nicholas Kristoff. So essentially, this uh, op-ed is a measure of social progress finds that the quality of life has dropped in America over the last decade, even as it has risen almost everywhere else, which says a lot. So before we go into it, though, I want to define certain things. So the index that he's talking about is the Social Progress Index, which I had never heard of before. But again, as I said before, I think it is a really good indicator of how well a society is doing when you look at the factors that go into it. 
So to define the Social Progress Index or SPI, is it measures the extent to which countries provide for the social and environmental needs of their citizens. 54 indicators in the areas of basic human needs, foundations of well-being, and opportunity to progress show the relative performance of nations. The index is published by the nonprofit Social Progress Imperative and is based on the writings of Amataya Sen, Douglas North, and Joseph Stieglitz, which I thought was fucking cool because Stieglitz is the name of Hugo Stieglitz from Inglorious Bastards, so Joe Stieglitz <laughs> is good in my book. Uh, the SPI measures the well-being of a society by observing the social and environment, environmental outcomes directly rather than the economic factors. The social and environmental factors include wellness, including health, shelter, and sanitation, equality, inclusion, sustainability, and personal freedom and safety, which I think is really important. And so I went to, I further did a bit of research uh, into the SPI.org, which is the nonprofit that created the, um, the index. And their mission statement basically says, we dream of a world in which people come first, a world where families are safe, healthy, and free. Economic development is important, but strong economies alone do not guarantee strong societies which I feel is debatable, but I also, it also goes on to say, if people lack the most basic human necessities, the building blocks to improve their quality of life, a healthy environment, and the opportunity to reach their full potential, a society is failing regardless of what the economic numbers say. Again, something that is debatable. The Social Progress Index is a new way to define the success of our societies by using the comprehensive measures of real quality of life independent and economic indicators so essentially if people are fucking happy your country should be doing should be doing a lot should be doing better and people aren't that happy and if they're not happy because of the way they're living or the way they're educated or the way they're the the how can they afford healthcare? it essentially talks about the overall well-being of a nation which i really think is important because a lot of people don't talk about these things enough Everyone just goes, the economy's strong, so we're supposed to make money. Like Donald Trump has this this macro idea of how to uh, change the the living standards in the United States, which I guess that's a very noble quest. If if the whole country's making money, then we should be happy. But again, that's just not the case. So the op-ed st- starts with this. This should be a wake-up call. A new data suggests that the United States is one of just a few countries worldwide that is slipping backwards. The newest social progress index shared with me before the official release Thursday morning finds that out of 163 countries assessed worldwide, the United States, Brazil, and Hungary are the only ones which people are worse off than when the index began in 2011. And in the declines in Brazil and Hungary were smaller than the Americas. So it's not that bad in considering the worst of the countries, the countries that are doing worse since this thing started, but America's doing pretty poorly. So in, in that intro and, and talking about that, Doc, when you first jumped onto this op-ed, what, were the, what was the first ideas like going into it when you, start, when you read that first paragraph and what that meant? Well, first off, that this is just a different data set that kind of indicates something that I pretty much already knew. Right. Uh, so, so this isn't actually very surprising to me. So, if you actually look through a lot of other indicators, you know, essentially, me, I'm on the cusp of being a millennial and a Gen Xer. I was born in 1980, so basically, millennials and then now Gen Z. We are essentially the first generations in the, you know in U.S. history that will do fare worse than our parents right. in terms of economic outlook. You know, we're seeing, you know, uh, life expectancy is going down. A lot of that is related to uh, rises in obesity um, and situations like that, but also the opiate crisis. So yes. our life expectancy is going down. Essentially, three main economic uh, considerations, uh, housing, healthcare, and education have essentially tripled, uh, even if you account for inflation since essentially like 1980, um, but median uh, household incomes have stagnated. And during that time, the 
really it's more people say use the term one percent, but it's really actually like the top ten percent. Right. Um, have gotten wealthier during that time. Um, Very much so. The, the middle class has shrunk. Um, so there's basically all these indicators, and the, and the, and I think the, the biggest difficulty with this with figuring out things like that is so much of it is emotional, and so it's just it's tribal and partisan. So for example, if you poll people, if you poll Republicans on how they feel about the country, the economy, when Obama is in office, they'll tell you how terrible it is, and then literally the next day. If the, the, the candidate they prefer is in, they will tell you how great everything is. Right. And vice versa, it's, and vice versa is true. Um, so, like for example, our, uh, uh, Newt Gingrich was, was doing an interview for Fox News, and he was talking about this is before the 2016 election completed about how you know, well you know because they're talking about immigrant. Well, it's all this crime, and and you know the the host in the show was like, well, all data suggests crime and violent crime has been going down. For thirty years, for thirty some like, years, well, yes, yeah, and he and he goes well, but people feel like crime is up, right? So it's all emotional based. It's all partisan. It's all the lens through which you kind of look at this. So right. it's and and so it's uh, unfortunately, I think people kind of have a vested interest in depicting what is bad or good about a particular situation based on an argument that they're trying to. Yeah, they're trying know, to win exactly. They, they're trying to prove a particular theory that supports yeah, their narrative just, and their ideas yeah. instead of just looking at it from a very objective view and yeah. saying that's and what's and really tough. happening. It, yeah, but 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 I think, and this is really fundamental to say, I think at any given time, the task of figuring out in a macro sense what actually the state of things are is a difficult undertaking, and yeah. I don't think that should be un- understated. Like it's not actually trying to. Uh, figure these things out uh, takes a lot of research and a lot of work. Um, and unfortunately, what we do, we're, we're all tendency to uh, really hone in on narratives and anecdotal evidence. So, for example, um, if I want to prove that uh, the police are terrible, I'll find a video of a police officer being terrible. Doing something terrible, exactly, to support the narrative. For sure. I'll say... Well, there you have it. Look at that police officer being terrible. And I can say, well, yeah, clearly that's the police officer being terrible. But that's not how science works. That's not how data works. That is one instance that only proves in that one instance that you had a police officer being terrible. That does not speak to a national situation. And you can only do that with data and statistics and zooming out and not being emotionally invested in one one outcome or another. One thing I have to say about data and and statistics are that they can be skewed in, in, in many ways. And we've seen or cherry that. Picked. Pardon? Or cherry-picked. Or cherry-picked, exactly. That's main, yeah. mainly, mainly it's really selective and cherry-picked. There's a lot of what we see. Like, people aren't just straight up lying about the numbers when they talk about FBI crime statistics or, yeah. or poverty in, in that matter. But they are cherry-picking. They're doing very small, controlled uh, group studies where they're like okay in this particular community versus this community this is the way it is and then that becomes the overall number but again that's to support a particular narrative well i mean to me i here's the analogy i like um you guys ever watch like a a movie like a a court film or a tv show where they show so the beginning so this, this is a very you know the court drama is like a very common dramatic theme where the the prosecution they give their case and you watch the show and you're like man that motherfucker did that shit look at all this evidence right yeah then they have you skewed one way and then the defense gives their case like oh my god he's innocent right because when you're a prosecutor or you're a defender it's your job to look at all the evidence that helps you and ignore all the stuff that doesn't help that doesn't and that's how we all people who are involved in partisan or culture wars engage with it. So if I'm Ben Shapiro, right, and I'm trying to prove to you that Oh Benny systemic race, yeah, if I'm, and I'm trying to prove to you that systemic racism doesn't exist, I'm going to use data that supports that. So I'll give you an example. So someone like that, they'll say, well if you look at the numbers, actually more white people are killed by police than black people. But, of course. But what what do they what do they fail to say? Well no, but not per capita of uh, you know, it's not, well, you know, but there's only this amount of black people and there's way more white people. So 
the rate in which exactly that, that was my next higher, one. That was the right? next one. Well, there's more white people and there's more black people, so of course more white people are going to get shot. But it's more black people per capita that are getting shot. It, it's it's really it's really a lot of people don't look at it from being pragmatic and practical. So like I'll you're give you another. I'll give you another. Yeah, I'll give you another example. So then I'll continue the argument, and then I'll say, "Well, that's because black people commit more, more crimes." crimes. Mm-hmm. But then I'll say, "But yes, but all the police, what they do is they over police those areas, and then so they basically they stay in the black neighborhood, so they don't go to the white neighborhood, and they arrest all those people. And if you look, actually look at crimes, right? So the amount of only about half of murders are solved, right? And even probably out of those half, how many innocent people actually get arrested for for committing murders? Uh, robberies, it's something like, you know, 10% of robberies are resolved, 20% of rapes are resolved, not counting all the rapes that never actually even get um, reported. Reported, yeah. right? So, so if you're telling me one, you know, two, you know, two out of every 10 rapes get solved, what I'm te- you're telling me is you actually don't know who does the crime because you didn't solve the crime. You didn't solve the crime, so, exactly. Or you so, didn't prosecute. Sure. You didn't prosecute yes. the person that was arrested so, for that crime and that crime so, was... Get down to a misdemeanor, and that that kind yeah. of that kind of fobs the numbers in 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 a certain way as well. Yeah, that so changes. When you look the, at, yeah, so, but when you look at drug crimes specifically, they know, you know, studies have shown black people, and white people buy or use drugs basically at the same rate, and I'm sure people buy drugs from people they know. So the truth is, these, these people being over police. So 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 what I'm saying is, it's not that that data isn't true; it's just that it's used in a way that not provided with context, you can make that data malleable for, for the argument you're trying to convey. Of course, it can, anything, whatever facts you want to use to support your narrative, you're going to use. And that'll even, that'll take us a little bit more into what, when we talk about the debate from last night, because we saw a lot of that. But um, to highlight another Another very weird part of this, this, this uh, op-ed that stuck out to me. The United States has high levels of early marriage. Most states still allow child marriages. Not to take us off what we were doing, but I, you know, in a, a time where we're talking so much and putting so much emphasis and focus on pedophilia and uh, sexual abuse against children, I would have thought that the United States would have had it together. But as you do a bit more digging... And you do, you look at the stats and to me, I was like, okay, what do we define in the United States? What's defined as a child marriage? I saw overseas when I, when I I lived overseas, I saw what people thought was a child marriage. But if you look at some of the statistics and facts regarding minors and children and marriage in the United States, it's alarming to say the least. It's clear to me that we have no idea that we don't have a difference between what's a child, a minor, and an adult in this country because, as again, the stats are staggering. But I guess that's supposed to lead what the op-ed is trying to say are in a country that has high levels of early marriages, I suppose that marriage doesn't also ultimately lead to happiness and, and, and social progress and bliss. And you're supposed to be in a situation when you're a bit more mature to be able to understand the what it entails to be married and most importantly i think you're supposed to know a little bit more about life which could ultimately lead to happiness and social progress and yourself but i found it extremely alarming that that was a part of the spi that was part of the index like you know high levels of early marriage but um it it, what's shocking to me mostly about that statement not being mature enough to handle certain things in life like you and doc you brought this up being you know part of gen x but on the cusp of being a millennial so in your life being mature enough to handle something like marriage at an early age which i guess is what the the op-ed's saying do we find parallels be from generation to generation on what marriage means to each uh each person from from said generation well i mean this is you know i mean i think the generational element of this is is very important but i think this is also very much tied to um essentially how uh the work 
environment has changed and right. how the traditional roles between men and women have altered. So through most of human history, women were dependent on men for survival. And so if you kind of look at the, the, the past between the early uh, women's uh, liberation movements, um, you know, at the, in, the, in the 20s with getting the right to vote and then also becoming, you know, a lot of this stuff kind of started to germinate after, during World War II when a lot of men were away women went and started working in the factories and kind of taking over, over, over these different elements. And, and women kind of through that, through the 20th century gained their independence. And then there was also a law um, passed in the 1970s, which led to no fault divorces. So the divorce rate started to skyrocket in the 1970s, which in many regards was a great thing because you had a lot of women who could finally go out and earn a living on their own. Didn't right. have to be Just dependent. be independent for sure. Yes, who are caught in abusive relationships. Um, but, you know, there are, you know, and this is a lot of the great conservative movement within the 1980s and family values and all that stuff was around the a response to the disintegration of the American, the American family, family, the nuclear family. Yeah. Um, which, listen, I, and I think there's some credibility. Like the Ra- you're talking and, about the Reagan era gay rights laws. Well, not necessarily gay rights. Uh, law specifically, but I just mean a, a coalescing around a more traditional family idea, right? Um, and they and that there was a response to. So in the seventies, you just had a lot of uh, liberal policies taking hold. So you have Roe v. Wade that yes. passed in, in the seventies. You had this, this no uh, no fault of divorces, um, and people and a lot of that. You know, and you got to remember with cultural politics, it's a yin and a yang. One action creates another reaction culturally. Mm-hmm. And so people yearned for a more traditional path. And, and listen, if you look how that's gone, you know, I mean, force rates in this country are right around 50%. Um, but that doesn't, you know, and, and in many regards, you know, there's a lot of statistics that kind of indicate uh, that, you know, crime and, you know, and kind of turn, how young people turn out with, you know, single parent homes. There's a lot, you know, it's, it's very messy, you know? Um, but I just think we're in a situation, we're in a situation where people still want to get married. People still want to have families. Those things haven't disappeared. Nothing, but we're yeah, that hasn't of, changed, right? Yeah. But we're also confronting a lot of drastic evolutions in the way traditional men and women roles in terms of who's right. the breadwinner and who wears the pants in the family all that stuff we're we're in kind of this it's a lot of change in a short amount of time it's a culture it's uh, a cultural evolution uh yeah and, men, it, and, and ideas and such and that goes back to this conversation we had with uh this professor um the episode isn't out yet but it will be uh this professor dan Casasanto, who uh who studies were in cognitive science and he was talking about the behavior and how how the gender roles have changed and how traditionally how we've behaved towards each other then as opposed to now and how that can alter the the makeup of a family and the way we we view the traditional family in America and I think that's a really that's that's a really important subject that I don't think the government should be involved in defining what is a family and who can make up a family but again that's a personal uh that's a personal belief, and I don't really, I just don't think the government should be involved in that, but, you know, who knows? Well, then you get the people that scream, oh, but the tax breaks, you gotta yeah. have the intervention. It's, of, of course. Yeah, it's, it's, I agree with you. I think it just, it, it takes away from the real issues, which are how can people be a little, how, how can people interact with each other that makes them a bit more happier, and I don't know. You know, Doc, you, you, Again, being very analytical as you are and informed, you have an idea of where partisanism could help and by excuse me, where bipartisanism can help in solving certain social issues. And I guess the makeup of the family is one of those social issues. Am I right? Or, or well, I, listen, I think one, one in terms of like my kind of evolution as kind of a political thinker. And becoming more centrist as I've gotten older, and part of that is just understanding that both 
sides of the argument are relevant, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, you know, one of the more fascinating things to me about politics and partisanship in particular is not necessarily that people believe in one thing or the other, ascribe to certain ideology. What's fascinating to me is why people end up thinking what way they think. And when you actually start understanding that, so I, uh, I'm a big fan of this author, uh, Jonathan uh, Haidt, or Haidt, I think I pronounced it, uh, but he, he wrote a book basically explaining partisanship, and they did all these studies on like, the psychology of mm-hmm. the motivators behind why people are conservative, why people are liberal, and it's really these different values, that set of values, right? And right. the truth is, and even though I might fall in a particular place on that spectrum, it doesn't mean I think someone else's standpoint is invalid. It's I necessarily think you need, wrong. You need that. You need, I think you need, like, conservatives just generally are more traditional and they don't want things to change as much. Well, that's so true conservatism, more, conservatism. Yeah. Because I, and think I think we've lost that. I think both parties have kind of, you know, what are traditional liberal values versus what is traditional American conservatism and it's 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 altered and it's real convoluted. Yeah, it's and altered. I think that most people that, you know, jump on and go, Oh, you damn liberals, I feel they're more kind of right wing and not really they don't really ascribe to conservatism or conservative ideals that made up, you know, yeah, and there's, listen, and there's micro categories. Yeah, and there's micro categories within that. And I, like I said, there's a distinction between you know liberal, conservative, left, right, right. Republican, uh, Democrat. There's there's a lot of um, nuance within within all that, and these things change, right? So like, you know, the Democrat Party was pretty, you know, was a lot more conservative. Yeah, at one point, yeah, and even like yeah. even during Clinton's era, that you could say that was very conservative, especially with the, yeah. the Law and Order chat. You know, like yeah. I'm the tough on crime Democrat, I'm the tough on crime liberal, so therefore my my policies should appeal to those that set yeah. more and that was a and that was it, right? right. Now, yeah, and then but that's what I'm saying. When you have someone who's, uh, you know, a quote unquote liberal or Democrat, but is willing to take on policies, you know, like, for example, like, you know, Ronald Reagan, by today's standards, would be considered liberal on uh, immigration. You know, um, you know, uh, Nixon created the EPA. You know, uh, you know, Nixon was uh, the guy who made the most um, uh, progress on reaching out to China, for example, when they were still a communist, you know, really communist. And Mm -hmm. that was considered Mm -hmm. like, kind of over the top, you know, in terms of uh, Well, it's all real real neoliberalism if you really look at it. If we get into the philosophy of it, I think it's just more of, and it just expounds on what uh, FDR was doing and what uh, JFK wanted to do. You know, I don't think there really is much of a far left, far right situation. I just think yeah, and I'm a I'm a I'm a neoliberal. You know, there's there's a certain there's a certain, uh, and I know that's kind of a a dirty term to a lot of people, which is, you know, and for people to understand, you know, neoliberalism is basically espousing to a certain amount of liberal ideas in terms of freedom, yeah, care, the liberty, care free, for people, free but challenge systems. Yeah, but free speech, uh, free press, um, but, you know, you're for uh, market economies, right. uh, free, free trade, um, but, uh, um, you know, and a certain amount of kind of global collectivism involved in that as as well so there's you know um you know and, I, and, and i'm almost it's not like i'm some raw raw person for neoliberalism it's more like i've read enough about it to go oh yeah i guess i kind of fall in that of course range and, and but guess what it ain't that cool to call yourself a neoliberal these days no. things have gotten very you know you have the, you know the far right is very anti-globalist they've, well they've used words yeah they've used words and now they've kind of demonized certain words and and it's really hard. You, you're kind of like stepping on minefields because I continue to tell people, like, I espouse liberal ideals. I understand that. Basically, exactly what you said. And I explain that to people. But just hearing the term, you know, liberal, it's like mentioning George Soros, like the guy who's a billionaire that hates right-wing governments. I mean, that's all I know the guy to be. But you mentioned George Soros, then you must be a globalist and you must be part of the deep state and you must want to destroy America and everything we stand for. So it, it's really hard to talk about these things. Um, but here, 
Here's a very good point where we're alluding to. The op-ed goes into saying, America ranks a shameful number 100 in discrimination against minorities. Okay, I understand that. But also lags in sharing political power amongst all citizens. So the debate last night stirred up a frenzy of political discussions today. I think today was probably one of the, the, if you looked on Google, everywhere you looked, everyone was talking about the debate. Even people in England, family in England were like, oh, let's have a chat about it at 4 a.m. I'm like, no, I don't want to talk about it right now. But um, the, it stirred up this, this politi- these political discussions. And I think in a society like ours, and especially what's been pushed forward, if we're trying to eliminate the idea of racism and claim that we are a fair and equitable society, shouldn't we create a more equitable playing field politically? So, Doc, does representation matter in social progress and happiness? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, you know, so I, I watched the uh, documentary on Ruth Bader Ginsburg the day she died, and uh, New York Times had a, on their podcast daily, had a great two-part series on it, kind of talking about her accomplishments. And she uh, talked about an experience she had uh, working in Sweden early in her career um, that really kind of motivated her to take on a more uh, civil rights for women agenda was that she she saw how egalitarian Sweden was, that there were right. so many more women involved in the judicial system and in government. And to me, it just, you know, unfortunately, I think, and this is with all things, right? When things are one way for a long time, they almost become invisible. Right. Of right? course, it blurs, the lines so, get blurred. Well, so it's like if you have 45 presidents and 44 of them are white men, it, the president seems like it should be a white guy. You know what I'm saying? Of like course. It just seems like that's, it, it, in your mind, that's what you kind of envision. Um, and to me, I think society would function better if, you know, I do, you know, I think half the, the representatives in our government should be women because half the citizens are women and they, and women have a different perspective and they have a different, uh, you know, approach. A way to approach and issues, I, of course. And, 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 and they see things differently and they're just as relevant citizens as, as we are. But the historically, you know, and, and, it, and listen, this, this varies culture because there's more paternal societies, there's more maternal societies that are, there are Different, you know, kind of tribal societies where women run the show, and those, you know, so there's like there's matriarchal some versus pa- patriarchal societies. Exactly. Yeah. So there's there's some vari- variants in that, um, but you know, we're you know a lot of our Western culture is derived from kind of Judeo-Christian values and, and some of these things, and that you know that's just it, it is what it is. And that brings up a very that brings up a moral question, and that t- that ties back into something you said early in the conversation in regards to value systems. And when you, you integrate you know, religious ideals into your value system, and then you translate that into the political sphere, uh, or you transition that into the political sphere, I think a lot gets lost in translation, and I think we sometimes leave certain people behind because there's a, very, there's a high percentage of people that just want to separate church from state, and they see that, as an infiltration into their personal freedoms when you use a religious text or you use religious ideology to judge someone, and especially when it gets integrated into law. So with that being said, how important is Roe versus Wade right now? Do you think that's on the table? Because people have said that. Do you think that that Roe versus Wade is at stake here or in jeopardy in this this election? Um, I think yes and no. I think legally... Um, I, I, I think it's such a, a hot button issue. Essentially what, what Republicans do effectively is use, so think about it. So for 30 some odd years, they've been campaigning on pro-life, pro-life yes. right? And that got, and there are many, so the entire, uh, evangelical community, which is a massive voting block in this country is almost a one issue voter. Right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but with it, so but the way they've effectively worked that is helped is, is not by peeling back Roe v. Wade. It's by peeling back the uh, the accessibility to abortions in states. Right. 
Um, and, and, they, and they've had a lot of success, actually, in a lot of red states, southern states. Um, so yeah, I mean, by I defunding Planned Parenthood in certain, in certain states. All kinds or, of stuff. Putting, all, all sorts um, of shit. Birth yeah, control. The, yeah, the, the availability of birth control. Of, all of that, for sure. Yeah, yeah, all, all, yeah all this kind of stuff. Um, so I think in many ways it's, it's, a, it's a great wedge issue that helps motivate their block. But they literally haven't, from a national standpoint, they haven't done it, right? right. So in, they, have this, they kind of play a shell game where they tell their, their constituency that we're pro-life and we're going to do everything and make everything pro-life. But they haven't actually done anything. So I think it's they can't, weird they, thing they want of, the vote. They need the vote. Yes, but, but they haven't. But what I'm saying is, like, if I, I'm trying to think of an opposite, um, like maybe I, I guess guns would be for liberals where they're saying we need gun control, we need gun control, but there hasn't really been a ton of gun control. <laughs> but, but like that, you see it in states, but not, not necessarily nat- uh, nationally. You had a salt leather ban in the 90s, which mm-hmm. came, uh, which uh, was stopped uh, when George Bush came in, came in office. But other than that, there hasn't been a lot of national stuff, despite the fact that most um, people are for like uh, better background checks and, and things like that. But, uh, but anyway, so. I don't, people, Donald Trump wants to motivate his voters to say, I'm going to put in judges that will repeal this law. Right. But I don't know if they'll actually do it. Because I think it it would be so motivating to the opposition if it actually happened and would create such a Oh, it'd be, that, it'd be a galvanizing of those that fall on, yeah, on so the I don't, so I don't, left. So, I, so I, I don't, you know, the truth is, I, I feel like I, I don't want to talk too much about the subject without really understanding the mechanisms of yeah, how of course, it would happen. Because I don't know enough about how those laws get uh, passed or How undone you repeal something that, by, that important, by, that through, big. Through the judiciary. I don't yeah. want to overstate that. Of um, course. I think there is. So I don't know if it's as much a plan to physically do it or if it's more of a PR thing that helps sell an idea to voters. I'm not totally sure. So, yeah, if it's um, just a platform to stand on to get your people riled up. I mean, Could um, it happen? Sure. Do I know the actual percentage likelihood? I don't. And I don't want I don't, to, I don't like to, to talk about things I don't really have a great. Right, right. Uh, of course. Of course. And that's honest, man. That's honest. You, you, you know, one thing, um, I want to talk about aside from the uh, off the topic of the op-ed uh, are that there are a lot of people that are commentators now on politics and social issues that jump on YouTube and they jump on social media and they make these very outlandish statements about things that I think they don't really understand. I think that uh, I'm not going to name names, but there are certain people out there and it's like all they want to do is attack, attack, attack people with, because I think they do that because they don't really know what they're talking about. So they, the only thing that they can do is retreat and get into this attack mode, you know, into attack mode, then lash out, you know, and uh, talk about how much, how stupid Black Lives Matter is or how dumb this person is for thinking that Breonna Taylor did, was, you know, was unjustified or justified or whatever it may be. And I think it's, a, it's, a, it's commendable that you would get on and say, I don't want to talk about something unless I don't know it because people seem to not want to do that these days. I think it's just turn press press our uh, record and go in in uh in in this current climate. But um so touching back getting back to the the op-ed there's a statement in there the United States despite its immense wealth, military power and cultural influence ranks 28th having slipped from 19th in 2011. The index now puts the United States behind significantly poorer countries, including Estonia, Czech Republic, Cyprus, and Greece. I think that there is an overwhelming amount of genius in this country. I think we have a surplus of genius. And the, uh, the op-ed talks about that in saying, we are no longer the country we think we are. The United States ranks number one in the world in quality of universities, but number 91 in access to quality basic education. The U.S. leads the world in medical technology, yet we are number 97 in access to quality health care. 
<laughs> I feel uh, Mr. Well, Carol. So we are we're Elysium. Yeah. You know, their movie Elysium. Oh yeah. Or, oh, yeah. Or, Matt or, Damon. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, or you know, a battle angel leader, right? So yeah. essentially we and this is listen, I'm I'm friends with a lot of European people who came to America and made a lot of money and they like you know, they came from more socialized egalitarian uh, society. Society, yeah. But the thing but the thing they like about America is that you have capitalism so unrestrained it's made so that you can come here and do and get yeah. really rich. And be and be and you anything can, you, you really want to be. Yeah, That's the beauty of the you, system. Yeah, yeah. If you're willing to just go for it and you have the motivation and you're smart, you can pretty much go as high as you want. Um, Correct. But the downside of that is that the way our system is set up is that we purposefully make it so shitty to be poor that it's supposed to be a motivator for you right. to work harder. Right. right? right. So it's this idea that if we made it not that difficult to be poor and it made it, then people wouldn't work hard. And, and, and like, who, would you sell to? who would be the consumer at that point? You yeah, know, when I, all I, I, selling I, to each other, you need to sell yeah. to people that so need and want. That. Yeah. So I understand that mentality and uh kind of psychology and, and all that I, mm-hmm. you know so and i have my and i have my thoughts on how i think that could be adjusted um but so i'd like to say this is it's elysium right so you might say well it's 28th and all these things but no it's only 28th if you make under forty thousand dollars a year but if you if you make a lot of money then you're getting good health care and you're, you're getting you're getting all the benefits you're, you're, of what, that, of what going, the system your, has. Your kids are going to good school for sure. And you live in a nice neighborhood, and you so essentially what we're you know like I said because we have destroyed the middle class in this country for the last thirty years, mm-hmm. um, and essentially and this and this so like I said, if you really look at economic factors, right? Mm-hmm. And so I brought about stuff earlier about how education. Housing, healthcare is all skyrocketed, but people's they make the same amount of money basically, so they have less money to spend on all the things they need more, and that's a squeeze, right? So that's so that, so to me, like when I see uh, all these people in the streets, and people kind of don't like you know, people have very short memories, right? To me, everything that's happening now is essentially the Occupy Wall Street. People forget these these, mm-hmm. these rallies that they're having. Right, that was a big deal. You know, in response to the crash sure. in 2008. It's and all a culmination. Response, it's all a culmination of all yeah. those factors so, and what what le- this is what it, it ultimately led to. So what people you know don't look at when they look at the recovery during the Obama years is that essentially job rates uh, did better. So people got the jobs back, but the jobs they got back were not as good mm-hmm. and well-paying as the ones they lost. So everything, the economy changed. It went to a service economy. You have people who went to the gig economy, right? So instead of someone working at a company making $60,000 a year with health coverage and a 401k, now they're driving Uber. They have no health care. You know what I'm saying? Like, so well, a lot of those yeah, their got, jobs and the, those positions got phased out due to like technology and no, it's a lot of changing landscape of of employment. A lot of that is not even because of government; it's just because the world changed, right? Right. So, but, exactly. but, but what I'm saying is, so you had these. So, the stock market recovered, did great. Rich people mm-hmm. did did very well. Investment class did did very well. But despite those recovery, the gap between rich and poor just increased. Just burgeoned. So, and that's being honest about what that was. Right. And so right. that just continued um, within the Trump era. And then what Trump did was then he lowered the taxes on all the people that were already kicking ass and all the corporations that already had money. Mm-hmm. They got more money and then put it on the credit card. Right. He didn't balance the budget. So he didn't pay for his tax cuts. And so that is a, an inflation. So that's a way of basically adding steroids to your economy. Yeah, when course. you cut taxes, but then you don't. Um, you don't cut services to so that it balances. It's a way of artificially inflating the economy thing, for ten percent of the time. This is exactly what Reagan did. So exactly. Reagan lowered all these taxes, exactly. That's exactly and what it made say. the economy. And he, 
and the thing is, the economy didn't improve right away. When it actually took about uh, two or three years for it to start doing well, but he didn't balance the budget, so it made it seem like great economics. Everyone's doing great. I'm like, yes, but it's eventually the bill comes due, and then and when you when you do economic policy like that, there's always going to be a recession at some point or a crash that equalizes. You have to. And there ain't nothing. Everyone wants a free lunch, right? Yeah, everyone likes low taxes. No one likes paying taxes. Of course. So it's an easy thing to sell. And if you hey, pitch, if you you pitch it to people as I'm lowering the taxes, but again, that's like semantics and it's it's the way we said cherry picking statistics yeah. and cherry picking facts. You want a bunch of free you say you want a bunch yeah. of shit and not have to pay for it, basically. It's like, hey, we're going to make our military better. Guess what? We're going to get better health care and we're going to lower taxes. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. You can't. you got to cut something. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So, you can't so, rob anyway, Peter to pay Paul in yeah, an economic so, sense. So I think that, that us being 20, if you're doing well, you're living in the number one version of America. It's mm-hmm. everyone else who's living in the in the shitty part of America. And I think what you kind of forget is this country, the idea of the American dream is great marketing, right? American exceptionalism, this idea that we're just a special society. And that marketing and this idea of a, a nation of people that are very proud of their country and very patriotic, but they're, but it's like, we're just the best of marketing. We have the best anthem. We have the best flag. Like it just, we're just, it's an idea that's right. more sunnier and better than the actual reality. And most of the people that think we're number one and all these things have never been anywhere. They don't even have anything to compare it to. They've just been told for so long that they're the best that they haven't. And I think there's positives and negatives to that, right? You'd rather have a country where people are like, yeah, we're great. I love it here. As opposed to a country where like, yo, our country's garbage. Like if everyone thought that, then it would be. And honestly, I think I that's think kind of this number, happens. this number 28 number would probably be a lot lower if everyone thought that. Well, it's just national pride is, is a valuable thing. You know what I'm saying? Like if, like if you had a country like, and this has happened where we're like, fight, we'll go to fight like Iraq, and like literally soldiers are like putting their guns down. So they're like, yeah, fuck this, I'm not fighting for this. It's garbage, you know. And so, right. so I, there is a value in that. Um, it's just like that we're we're so in love with the American the dream. American dream of, yeah, is a well, dream. Well, of course, dreams aren't real. <laughs> No. You know, but when, when someone achieves, like we said, in, in, in the society, and especially people like us, and to, to, yeah. to bring us back to what we do, I think it's, it's we're living our dream to a certain extent. We know the downsides to being in a rock band, especially, and to being a musician. We know the financial, uh, the financial burdens that that can come with or the lack thereof when it comes to finances. But at the same time, I think we're doing something that a lot of people would really want to do. And they see that as, well, look at you, you're living your dream and you're living part. You're, you're the living example of when you want something in this country, you can go up, you can go for it and be it and, and grab it. And, and it's tangible, which again, I think that's a, that's a beautiful part of the system. But on the other side of the spectrum, as you said, when you're poor and that's all, you know, Sometimes that's all you can achieve because that's what you think. And that's, that's the, the world that you've seen and it doesn't help. So there isn't much social mobility in the United States or not as much social mobility in the United States. Not as, as much there as was. people think there is. Not as much as people think there is. Exactly. Um, I went to China. I went to China in 2010 and this was during massive GDP expansion And one thing that I observed to touch on what you had said about destroying the middle class in America is that the middle class in China expanded rapidly overnight. And there was a little bit of them fobbing the numbers too with saying, you know, building those ghost cities that no one ever moved Mm -hmm. into and shit like that. But on, on a scale, uh, uh, on a scale, as opposed to what we were doing here in the States, they were growing and making a lot of money. And we've seen that now, especially with the expansion of China in the world. I mean, they're colonizing Africa faster than the Europeans ever did. And so, and you know, and they're, they're moving into the Middle East and, and to 
the subcontinent, India and Pakistan and such. So China's growing whilst our middle class is shrinking and the upward mobility and social mobility in the United States is shrinking drastically as the days go by. Yeah, I mean, and listen, it, to a certain degree, it's right, right? Everything that goes up must come down, right? Right. There's, there's no such thing as infinite expanse. That's not a, um, it's not a principle of, of physics. Right. 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 Except for, with the exception of the universe, which is theoretically infinite. The Infinitely, of course. Um, but, you know, in terms of nature, things, things don't exist like that. Things, whatever goes up must come down. There's natural equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Peaks and peaks, peaks and valleys, um, and no empire stays on top forever. And there's no, you know, and there's a lot of historical uh, uh, comparisons that kind of show this. You know, the fall of Rome and all this. And I'm, I'm a big fan of um, this guy, uh, hardcore history, uh, and he has another. Uh, I forget his name, Dan Carlin, um, one of the best podcasts in the world, historian. What's you know, the name of the podcast? Well, he has two, his most famous one is called Hardcore History, where he does okay. these, you know, three, three and four hour multi-part, um, most insanely researched uh, historical podcasts about, you know, ancient Mongolia and World okay. War One. Okay. You, you so he knows his stuff, yeah. but he has a political podcast called uh, Common Sense that he does maybe every one, every couple months. And he is, you know, and he uses, he really uses history and he talks about, you know, just essentially how he's a ver- he is centrist he is down the middle as anyone he does not he is mm-hmm. not pulling for any party which is what i love about him um and he really pinpoints this moment in particularly as a fulcrum in history where depending on what happens with this election we could you know because of an author uh, a leader who has authoritarian um wishing and aspiration. It's not. Yeah, yeah. There, thing is, there are people, dictatorial people can, leanings in this current administration, yeah, well, and yeah, so and, people, you know, so people conflate two different things. They right. they look at they're like, well, he's not an authoritarian because he can't do X, Y, and Z. That's not the point. The mm-hmm. point is his is the aspiration, and and much like right. uh, you know, it, it's so and and that process happens slow, but based on that, and whether there's a, a a willingness to accept election results or things like this where he, you know, he basically warned that there, you know, if it, we had a good run, right. But things, but, but our best days might be behind us. And, so and, things could, and this, I this could unravel. To talk, to talk on something that you just said, um, I think it's very unfair when people equate Donald Trump to say a Stalin or a Hitler. I was like, the, the guy's not Stalin, nor is he Hitler. But we cannot ignore the parallels between the rise of full-on authoritarianism as it took hold in Europe in the 40s and 50s and what we're seeing here in the States. Like one thing, politicizing policing. I think that politicizing policing is probably one of the worst things we can do and that seems to be that's where we're going. And, And the debate last night, Donald Trump made it very evident that that's what he's doing and that's what he's about when he said to Joe Biden... I have law enforcement and the military behind me. That's like Caesar saying, I'm going to march on Rome because I have the army behind me. You know, like those are things that we shouldn't, that should not enter the political conversation. It shouldn't be our cops on my side. And, you know, every, when I guess Chris Wallace had brought up um, Black Lives Matter and brought up other issues and asked Joe Biden about it. And Joe Biden started getting into uh, institutionalized and systemic racism and, and, and those issues and healing those things, Trump went into the law and order spiel. So why does talking about black issues or minority issues, why does that have to be respond? Why do you respond with law and order? That should never be part of the, the conversation. Or I don't think the conversation should ever take that route. And that was part of, that's one of those parallels that we see between dictators of the past and what we could possibly be seeing here in the United States when you start talking about law and order being the, the way of the land and that being the way that in which I want to govern this country. And I think that's really dangerous, and that could ultimately lead to a steady decline in social progress, which will ultimately lead 
to a, a full collapse of society as we know it, which could be poss- possibly what um, your man, Dan, all that podcast is talking about. And it's scary to think that. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's, he's more, ta- you know, I don't think he's talking about, you know, zombie apocalypse or anything like that. He's yeah, more talking about a, a possibility of, you know, and I think some of this is actually pretty relevant with that um, certain states seceding mm-hmm. uh, from, you know, from, from the government or it's the idea of, okay, this is, a certain kind of Donald Trump and imagine a re-elected Donald Trump and how, you know, four more years and the increasing intensity and what he might try and do. And right. kind of what, is that, what does that look like? What is that? What does the, yeah. the second we don't, term listen, Donald Trump look like? And we don't know yeah. that. And listen, a lot of this too, I mean, this is, these are viewed through, through, through partisan lens, you right. know? So like someone like, you know, Phil Labazzi from, uh, you know, from all our mains, we have him talk on Twitter all the time. He's not a Trump supporter, but he's, you know, a lot of his ideology is a little more the right wing. And he just kind of like, he kind of just lays down or laughs off that every, anyone coming from the left who says, hey, I think this guy's kind of being authoritarian. I think he's a really dangerous figure. They just kind of cast that idea off as being like paranoid. And that, well, you're just, you're exaggerating. It's hyperbole. And it's like. I mean, I get the instinct to not want to freak out about things, but at a certain point, you have to kind of look at something for what it is. And so, I, listen, I think I think there's enough consensus. I guess what I'm saying is that it's a tough balancing act to have an idea of. And this is this goes back to kind of the article you're talking about: is how do you know what takeaway is the most closest to what's objectively happening? And that everything now is being perceived through some type of biased lens, right? Um, and, 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 and I fundamentally believe there is no bias permeates everything. There's no such thing as a version of um, reality that doesn't have bias. That's true. Yeah, that's just, what you told me when I was starting this podcast. I was like, I want to try and be as unbiased as possible, which essentially means I'm trying to be as centrist as possible. But yeah, you're like, but you, know, no, you can't be unbiased, bro, you know? We, no, you can't because you can't get outside of your own humanity and your experiences mm-hmm. and, and anything. So we, so what I try and do is, is uh, get enough sources that I feel are as fair. The thing is, what you, you don't want is like not biased. You just want people who are fair, right? So a fair person will say, listen, I'm, I lean to the right. So right. take what I'm saying with graded on a curve of, understand where I'm coming from. So I'm being, I might come from the right, but I'm going to be as fair as possible, which is why I try and actually look for as many sources like on the right to kind of confirm some of the things I'm, I'm thinking because so that I know they're not coming to that conclusion from a partisan standpoint. You know what, yeah. what I'm saying? I, I understand. So I, I, understand so I try and, because I don't, I don't trust my own biases and not, because when you want something to be true, you have a tendency for it to believe it's true. If you want to something really not to be true, true right. you, then you're going to have a tendency to not see it. And so people tend to see the thing. Like I said, if you think, you know, speaking to the racist thing, if you think everyone's racist, you're, you're probably going racist. to see. Yeah. yeah and if you you're think racism, racism doesn't exist, you're never, you're going to be blind to any racism out there. So that's a, that's putting your own filter on the world as you see it. Right. And then, and then using confirmation bias to to do that. So so I try and go out there and, and not as little as possible have the answers first. I try and start things with a blank slate, and I and I try and find you know and that's why something like this right this this article which is like it's not very complimentary to what we're doing. But if your whole identity is built up around the idea of how great America is and how perfect it is and we never do anything wrong then that even the idea of it is kind of destabilizing, you know, like we, we sure. forget that the, our, our ideology is part of our identity, right? So if you're a Christian, for example, and I present some things to you that are atheistic, the whole idea of that is actually offensive to your whole, because if, if you don't, if you stop believing in that, then that is the foundation of everything of who you are. Exactly. So and it's very therefore you, you, you feel insulted that someone can't yeah. believe but in what you that, believe. Yeah, but not only that, you're defending, you're protective 
over these ideas because it's part of your identity. And by the way, that extends to political ideology. So if I'm liberal and I mm-hmm. hear something that is that is counter to what I already think, if I there's some evidence that turns out my viewpoint on a particular subject matter is not right, or maybe I don't have all the facts right. Like give you an example, like you, like with the Pagano Taylor thing, right? I, you know, I didn't really know the story. I just, I was like, no knock warrant. She was sleeping in her bed. She was murdered. I'm like, oh, that's terrible. What a terrible thing. But then I actually heard, heard the story. I read the New York Times thing on it. And it's like, well, no, she was, her ex-boyfriend was a drug dealer. Yeah. Even there's, even there's audio of him saying that he had, money to replace, but there's no evidence that actually Yeah, they say happened. that she was she was running a trap house, which I thought was a little was a little unfair. It wasn't necessarily well, a trap house. It we don't we don't know it. We don't yeah. we don't know, but it, the way it seemed there, that it might have been she didn't even realize. But, but, there, but the there, point was, was, there was no reason why there wasn't a reason. There was a reason why police could have been there and why she well, why well, there could be yeah. law enforcement surrounding but, but, but her. Here's, life. But here's but here's the main and, thing and that I situation. didn't know. Here's the thing, Nathan, I didn't know when I first heard about it. Right. Neither did that, I. Neither did I. No, no, but hold on. No, I'm not finished. I'm not finished. What I'm saying is, is that her boyfriend was there, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I never even heard there was another person there. He had a gun, legal, legally owned gun. Right. But he shot the cops first, critically injured a cop and hit him in, like, a, a main artery. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, that I knew. And things kind of went. Yeah. And things kinda, I, didn't, I didn't know that. But, what, but my point is with this is that, so... The problem is people get wrapped up in these ideas of justice, yes. right? But yes. unfortunately, actually, I'm going to say unfortunately. I, I think it, fortunately or unfortunately, our justice system is set up to actually protect the people from the state, right? So mm-hmm. even though cops mm-hmm. are a part of the are arms of the state, if they're accused of something, now they're the citizen right. and they're actually going against the state. So the point is, is that if someone fires upon me now, if I fire back, I am legally warranted in my firing. And you're so, not going to shoot at cops, and the cops not shoot back, especially well, when they're heavily armed. When you, shoot back. when you or, or you when you critically injure someone, of course. Um, and but the thing is, the situation got crazy after that. And the guy that sh- one of the guys that shot back, one of the, the crimes he was actually uh, put up for was like reckless endangerment because that and that guy was. The other guy shot back that was in trouble. He did do the wrong thing. But what I'm saying is, it's that it's more complex than a literal angel was sleeping in her bed and the cops no doubt warranted right. and just shot her. In the and just shot her, like, exactly. And it's tough. It, it's tough. It's but, tough to to argue those facts now that so much has been said because I think people are like, well, we've gone this far and we've used her as an icon and, exactly. a, and we've elevated her to this saintly status of martyrdom. And we need to continue on with it. And I think that really fucks up the conversation big style. Well, she seems like, dude, if you look at stuff better, she seemed like a really sweet person who was doing the right things in her life and was like, yeah, like she might have an angel, but she seemed like just in her life and how she treated people and what the things she was trying to do the right thing. And she was, yeah, she was a great person and, and didn't and deserve people are allowed redemption. Horrible. People are allowed redemption, man. And the situation well, surrounding her death sucks, man. Yeah. But, but, but my, really my, my general point is this. If I go into it wanting to have a very clean version of things where the people I care about in the story are completely innocent, the people right. I don't like are completely evil, and then the actual story is a lot more different shades of gray. And even if the cops did the wrong thing, legally, if I go to a court, if I'm a, if I'm a prosecutor and I'm trying to win a case, I just can't win that case. So you can say that I want justice, but the justice system is not is set up so that there's a lot of things that are just is it, they're not it's not that cut and dry about whether you can well, prosecute them. And guess what? That's a good thing for you because if you're in the system and you make a mistake or you do something wrong, you'd hope the system would err would on the pr- side of would protect hey, you. we want. Yeah, but the thing is, we I think there's some hypocrisy in that as well as like saying, well, we we want less people in jail. So if we want less people in jail, our whole thing should be, well, no, I need a bunch more people in jail. As long as it's the people I don't like. That's hypocritical to me. You know, we should be, have a comprehensive idea of how we view the criminal justice system and that ultimately, these these scenarios are just, just for time's sake, I'm going to cut here, but I definitely want to come back 
and do a part two or, and get into things like this. Um, I didn't uh, really want to take the conversation there, but it's, I'm glad that it, that it went there and that you're so comfortable with doing it. So I would like to come back maybe in about a week or two and let's talk about those things like the prison industrial complex and how it, you know, let's talk about the morality issues with, you know, the history of the Judeo-Christian faith that sort of, you know, laid the foundation for law in America and stuff like that. Let's talk about that. I'm, I'm more than willing to because for one, I like to learn and two, I know a lot about these things and I'd like to discuss that with people that are like-minded but for time's sake for the episode i want to cut and then um come back yeah listen, okay man, you know me i'm i'm i can talk about this stuff all day and i'm, I'm i appreciate I'm good on any any rabbit hole that is available and, I'm, and I'm then, always... um i want to go back into you know doc's closet a little bit and talk about you know a lot of what we were doing um you know prior to covid of what both bands were doing and what we were doing musically and stuff like that and talk a little bit about the Loudwire thing and the backlash and some of the idiocy surrounding the opinions on uh, the discussion. Johnny and I were going through some of the comments today and looking at that. But I'm going to close out the episode and then we can definitely reschedule and come back and then definitely keep continue chatting. Already. All right. But um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this has been the unnarrative. Uh, this is part one of our chat with Doc Coyle of Bad Wolves. We will be back with another episode and just getting further into some of the things and some of the knowledge that my man was dropping. Uh, Doc, I appreciate you being, you know, so well-versed in this subject and having a lot to say about it and not backing down because I think part of, and one of the reasons why we started the narrative was to create conversation because no one's learning from each other these days. We get into a situation where everyone's talking at the same time. What we saw in the debate last night, you're talking, I'm talking, no one's learning and no one's listening. So uh, thank you, my friend, for being on this episode of the Narrative Doc. Do you have any pluggables, things you want to plug for the show? I know you, you got a lot going on, so tell us about it, mate. Yeah, you know, I have my podcast, X-Man that I've been doing weekly and really grinding on that and have a lot of great guests. I've had Phil Demel Machine on the show. I just had uh, Jesse Leach and Killswitch. I have Angela Gossow, former singer of Arch Enemy coming to the show. Dave Lombardo from Slayer. Got some great shows coming up, so check that out anywhere where you look at podcasts. Um, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at .coil. I'm also on another show uh, like a, a weekly music review metal show called Last Words, which is presented by WeAreThePit.com. Yes, and that's yes. fun. Um, but yeah, so I'm I'm busy. I'm out there. I'm doing things. You know, Bad Wolves Patreon. Check that out. Sign up to that. Yeah, a Me lot too. happening in 2020. Yeah, yeah. Despite despite being home, you know, the, the despite grind being home, stop. yo, you got it. The the hustle does not stop, man. Doc, thank you so much, man. Folks, we will be back. I am the refugee. I am the American son, AJ Chana. This has been the Unnarrative Podcast. Thank you so much. I love you, Doc. Thank you so much, mate. Talk to you soon, Love pal. you too, homie. Peace. Peace.